being programmed to chill a show about business crime parapolitics and esoterica with your host jimmy fallon gong this is episode 34 imperial japan part 4 new buddhism versus gudo uchiyama today i'm recording from the hakone mountains so the famous theologian kpfa host proponent of psychedelic drugs and British agent, Alan Watts was perhaps best known for popularizing Hinduism, Taoism, and especially Zen Buddhism. Here's a great recommendation from Robert Anton Wilson, who called Watts one of his lights along the way in Wilson's book, Cosmic Trigger. Werner Erhard said that Alan Watts pointed me toward what I now call the distinction between self and mind. After my encounter with Alan, the context in which I was working shifted. Great recommendations both, right? Now, two prominent Zen Buddhists, however, criticized Alan Watts' understanding of Zen Buddhism. For example, in talking about Zazen, which is the classic mode of sitting, meditating, you know, it's, it's Zen meditation, basically. Alan Watts advocated a strict and specific type of sitting while Philip Kaplow and D.T. Suzuki both argued that Zazen is supposed to be a cultivation of a state of mind that you can access while technically sitting any kind of way. In fact, D.T. Suzuki epically owned him, you might say, by pointing out that Alan Watts defined Zazen with a koan, which a koan is a short saying or story in Zen Buddhism intended to provoke thought, often with a paradoxical or humorous or, you know, deeper meaning, right? So, Alan Watts, in defining Zazen, quoted a Zen master who said, a cat sits until it is tired of sitting, then gets up, stretches, and walks away. D.T. Suzuki quoted a different Zen master who had said, Even when you're sitting in meditation, if there's something you got to do, it's quite alright to get up and leave. Now, basically, Alan Watts betrayed his surface level, his puddle-deep understanding of Zen Buddhism, basically. And such is the level of understanding of beatnik popularizers of Zen Buddhism, right? Like, you would see similar bullshit with Jack Kerouac, for instance. And I think it's fair to question Alan Watts' actual understanding of Zen Buddhism. And dunking on him, you know, that's fun and easy to do. But today I would like to discuss Zen Buddhism's role in Imperial Japan. And of course, it wouldn't be programmed to chill without the upfront standard disclosure that I do not have anything against Zen Buddhism per se, nor with the Japanese people. And though this episode might sound like I do, if anything, it's the clergy and followers failing to live up to Zen Buddhism's precepts, arguably. Not that I think that there is anything inherently wrong with these precepts, right? Let's get into it. This won't be a full history of Zen Buddhism, but Zen Buddhism is, of course, a school of Mahayana Buddhism. Zen Buddhism was first developed in China, then it found its way to Korea, 
and then Japan. Now, outsiders and other schools of Buddhism have accused Japanese Zen Buddhism of having absorbed Shinto influences, and later also values from Bushido. On the other hand, its adherents claim a uniquely pure interpretation of the Buddha's Dharma. We will evaluate those claims in a minute. In some ways, they're all true, and in some ways, they're all false. And of course, I am by no means an expert in any of this, so let's go on. So like I said, Zen Buddhism, first China, then Korea, it first appears in Japan around the 600s AD. By the Tokugawa period, which was the 1600s to, you know, 1868, Zen Buddhism was arguably at the peak of its power and acceptance as a state religion in Japan. And at that period, every household was required to affiliate with a Buddhist temple. Almost like a diocese-type situation, right? Prior to the Tokugawa period, Japan had something like 13,000 temples, which, you know, is sort of a marker of, you know, the spread of Zen Buddhism, right? By the end of the Tokugawa period, there were almost 470,000 Zen Buddhist temples. Now, the reason why Zen Buddhism was given this privileged position was because the Tokugawa regime was determined to snuff out Christianity and the accompanying colonization of Japan. The two sort of linked. You know, it's hard to say that they're not linked, though people would like to litigate that, but let's just say it's Let's just say it's well outside the uh, purpose of this episode. But what is certain is that the Tokugawa regime used Zen Buddhism to try to snuff out Christianity. The regime also just exerted control over the Shinto clergy, such as it is, and the Confucians as well. Now, Shintoism and Zen Buddhism do in fact have a very long and complicated history together. They've existed side by side for a very long time. And they sometimes get along, they are sometimes allies, and they sometimes they sometimes fight very viciously. <clears throat> Just depends on the time and place and for what reason, right? Now, in 1868, Emperor Meiji of the Meiji era, right, he issued various reforms which included the separation edicts which required Buddhist clerics to be removed from Shinto shrines. From then on, only Shinto priests could administer the Shinto shrines. 40,000 temples were closed, and this functionally fired thousands of priests. It would be kind of wrong to call this a suppression of Zen Buddhism, but it was almost more like a curtailment. I mean, I guess if you were a Zen Buddhist priest, you would call it suppression, but, you know. Now, this decision caused several large riots in 1870 and 1871, and then a very large riot in 1873. This led the Meiji oligarchy to reevaluate and try to reintegrate Zen Buddhism back into the government's good graces. They did this through promoting what they called the Great Teaching which was the adherence to the following three principles. First, the principles of reverence for the national deities and of patriotism shall be observed, shall be observed, and two, 
the heavenly reason and the way of humanity shall be promulgated, and three, the throne shall be revered and the authorities obeyed. To that end, though, the great teaching was heavily more Shinto, you could say, and in order to participate, Buddhist priests had to act more Shinto, essentially. The great teaching was not effective, and the Zen Buddhists were quite unhappy with their forced Shintoization. By 1872, the government was discussing allowing separation of government and religion, and for there to be separation between the two. By 1873, the Meiji government lifted their ban on Christianity, and Zen Buddhism was allowed to leave the Great Teaching Movement. Shortly after, the Great Teaching Movement was abolished. Shintoism itself was going through changes at this time. And the Meiji political leaders believed that even the Shinto were too religious to rule. The Meiji constitution proclaimed in 1889 formally allowed for freedom of religious belief. This basically changed the nature of religion in Japan in a massive way, right? And things became a lot more in the modern conception of religion where you can choose what religion you are and it's like an identity rather than just a thing that you were forced into, basically. Now, in response to the failures of the great teaching movement and the new conditions of freedom of religion, which the Meiji constitution provided, the Zen Buddhist sects began to develop what would be called New Buddhism or Shinbukyo. And New Buddhism had three priorities. First, to show that Buddhist priests and temples could, could still contribute to Japan's social and economic life. Second, to show that Buddhism could promote loyalty, patriotism, and national unity. Third, to show that Western science and technology were compatible with Buddhist doctrines. Now, some external commentators in and out of Japan have compared New Buddhism to the Protestant Reformation. There are some parallels, though we should not get carried away because there were many differences too. For example, New Buddhism was advanced by many moderate reformers still loyal to their respective sects, and there were no sharp breaks. So it's kind of like if the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation both occurred at the same time and without any great societal conflicts over these reforms. And of course, all within one country instead of across Europe, instead of across Europe before nation-states functionally existed, right? Now, New Buddhism allowed for greater cooperation with academics. The most shining example would definitely be D.T. Suzuki. Let's talk about D.T. Suzuki. And no, like, I'm not going to reveal some awful crimes or that he was sus or something necessarily. But to Westerners, if you know anything about Zen Buddhism, chances are you might have interacted with D.T. Suzuki's work. He's like the go-to guy for... English language introductions to Zen Buddhism. In fact, he wrote the book on it, An Introduction to Zen Buddhism, which was wildly influential in the United States. But before that, D.T. Suzuki's work, his early work, was actually focused on countering Western academic claims that Zen Buddhism was a degenerated form of Mahayana Buddhism, which is certainly a theory that I have heard before, I mean, Zen Buddhism is arguably distant from 
you know, the Buddhism in India. Some people argue that it is, I don't know if I would say degenerate, um, because <laughs> that sounds like a loaded term, but I have heard that about Tibetan Buddhism too, you know. Arguably, both Tibetan Buddhism has the influence of the Bon folk religion. Zen Buddhism has Shintoism sort of mixed in, so it's a complicated question, and D.T. Suzuki spent a lot of time addressing it. Now, in terms of what New Buddhism did in order to accomplish these three goals we mentioned was that they formed a bunch of organizations. And one thing that nationalist Japanese love to do is make uh, make new organizations. And I love the titles of a lot of these. We will see a lot of them in the future with Yakuza and patriotic groups. I know some of the charm comes from the awkwardness of being translated into English, but nevertheless, let's look at some of these groups that New Buddhism and their respective sects formed in order to accomplish these goals. There was the United Movement for Revering the Emperor and Worshipping the Buddha. This promoted Japanese nationalism among their worshippers. There was the assembly to repay one's debt to the nation, which specifically promoted military service and conducted memorial services for fallen soldiers. Later, when the wars began, they created the Buddhist Society for the Defense of the Nation in order to aid the government's war efforts. Along these same lines, Buddhist priests were developing new theological justifications for violence. And, of course, I must say that this would be rank hypocrisy going against what the Buddha taught. But, of course, we should not be under any illusions that Western Christianity was in any higher position, morally speaking. One Buddhist priest named Uncho Shaku wrote an article called A Discussion on the Compassionate Buddhist Prohibition Against Killing. The article argued that there were just and lawless wars, and that just wars prevent humanity from falling into misery, which I remember hearing quite a bit around 2001, right? And then there's D.T. Suzuki, the preeminent scholar on Zen Buddhism, who wrote a book called A Treatise on the New Meaning of Religion. He wrote this book in 1896, and it includes this passage about militarism, which I will read. If we look at this unified relationship between religion and the state from the point of view of international morality, we see that the purpose of maintaining soldiers and encouraging the military arts is not to conquer other countries or deprive them of their rights or freedom. Rather, they are done only to preserve the existence of one's country and to prevent it from being, from being encroached upon by unruly heathens. The construction of big warships and casting of giant cannon are not to trample on the wealth and profit of others for personal gain. Rather, they are done only to prevent the history of one's country from being disturbed by injustice and outrageousness. Conducting commerce and working to increase production are not for the purpose of building up material wealth in order to subdue other nations. Rather, they are done only in order to develop more and more human knowledge and bring about the perfection of morality. Unquote. Which, of course, the order of these episodes, this episode will come out after I've talked about the imperial occupation of Korea, 
Manchuria, and China. Obviously, I've tried to avoid dwelling on the massacres at Nanking, the slave labor, the outright theft and looting. And to be clear, a lot of this happened after 1896, which is when he wrote that. But I would say, obviously, Suzuki's got a blinding moral failing here. Like, as bad or worse as Martin Heidegger or, you know, take your pick from any Westerner. Suzuki also failed to translate passages that Soen Nakagawa wrote. He, of course, was a Zen master, which contradicted militarism, including Soen's quoting of Leo Tolstoy. Even worse, there was a popular position that Zen Buddhists advocated that said that killing was in fact done independently of the individual's will, and that individuals were therefore not responsible. The reason was because you affect a sword, and the sword does the killing, therefore you are not the one doing the killing, therefore you are blameless. It is insane, but D.T. Suzuki actually advocated this position. But, I hear you, dear listener, saying, did everyone think this way, or was there any opposition to New Buddhism? Did anyone say, no, this is a bastardization of the spirit and purpose of Buddhism? Oh, there definitely was. One of the big ones, arguably, was a man named Gudo Uchiyama, who was a Soto sect Zen Buddhist priest. He became the abbot of the Rinsenji Temple in the rural region of the Hakone Mountains. Now, Uchiyama was an avid reader of Japan's socialist daily newspaper, the Haimen Shimbun, or the Commoner's News. Or at least he read it until it was shut down in 1905. Before it was shut down, Uchiyama wrote an article in that newspaper in 1904 entitled, How Do You Become a Socialist? In that article, he wrote, As a propagator of Buddhism, I teach that all sentient beings have the Buddha nature, and that within the Dharma there is equality with neither superior nor inferior. Further, I teach that all sentient beings are my children. That the Buddha was saying that. He said, Having taken these golden words as the basis of my faith, I discovered that they are in complete agreement with the principles of socialism. It was thus that I became a believer in socialism. And yeah, with the Russo-Japanese War of 1905, the Japanese government shut down the Haimen Shimbun newspaper, which functionally ended legal domestic opposition to the war, and to Japanese militarism, by and large. As part of the same wave of repression, the The government banned the Socialist Party in 1907. Then they banned socialist meetings or newspapers of any kind in 1908. Now, if you look to Russia, whenever there's this high level of repression occurring, then talk inevitably tends toward direct action and illegalism. And, like, assassinations, right? Now, Uchiyama started educating, agitating, and organizing out of his rural temple. In 1909, he and a feminist activist, Sugako Kano, 
bought a printing press which they ran in the temple. Uchiyama wrote several more works like a piece called Common Consciousness and he also wrote Fragment from a Prison Manuscript. He wrote that while he was imprisoned for a time in 1909 for violating the publications law. Around this same time, he was defrocked and deprived of his abbotship. Uchiyama's best work is called In Commemoration of Imprisonment, Anarcho-Communism Revolution. This work starts with the passage about dirt poor tenant farmers. He wrote, Is your poverty the result, as the Buddhists maintain, of the retribution due you because of your evil deeds in the past? Listen, friends. If, having now entered the 20th century, you were to be deceived by superstitions like this, you would still be no better than oxen or horses. Would this please you? Unquote. Uchiyama was arguing in direct response to the standard interpretation of Zen Buddhism at the time in Japan. For example, there was the prominent monk, Soen Shaku, who wrote, we are born in the world of variety, some are poor and unfortunate, others are wealthy and happy. This state will be repeated again and again in our future lives. But to whom shall we complain of our misery? To none but ourselves. Unquote. Now, of course, in the West, we've had similar arguments, you know, like most prominent probably in America and a lot of Europe would be the... <laughs> Uh, sort of Protestant idea that you are prosperous because you are righteous and therefore the more prosperous you are, the more righteous you are. Like we have that in hyperdrive now with prosperity gospel, but before that it was just, you know, you know, it goes back a long ways, right? Uchiyama clearly articulated that the Buddhist doctrine of karma was providing the justification for social and economic inequality and that this was wrong. There will be pie in the sky when you die, right? A long-haired preacher's come out every night I try to tell you what's wrong and what's right But when asked about something to eat I they will answer in voices so sweet You will eat, you will eat by and by in that glorious land in the sky, way up high, work and pray, live on hay. You get by in the sky when you die, that's a lie. The starvation army they play, and they shout and they clap and they pray. When they got all your coins on the drum, they will tell you when you're on the bomb. You will in that glorious land in the sky, way up high, work and praise, live on hay. You get by in the sky when you die, that's a lie. Holy rollers and jumpers come out, and they roll and they jump and they shout. Give your money to Jesus, they say, and you lead on that glorious day. You will eat, you will eat by and by In that glorious land in the sky Where I work and pray Live on hay You get by in the sky when you die That's why working folks of all countries unite 
A side by side we for freedom will fight uh, When this world and its wealth we have gained uh, Back to the grafters we'll sing this refrain You and me, we fight fight uh, When you learn how to cook and how to fry uh, Chop some wood, do you good Now, Uchiyama advocated for land reform, which almost no one was allowed to discuss at this time whatsoever. What's crucial to understanding Uchiyama and what happened to him is realizing that he made his arguments for socialism using his understanding of Buddhism, right? More specific to his sect, he also criticized the outright selling of abbotships as well. Now, his interpretation of Buddhism was obviously less manipulative and evil than his contemporaries, but for that exact reason, he was also a massive political threat. Uchiyama also wrote, quote, There are three leeches who suck the people's blood, the emperor, the rich, and the big landowners. The big boss of the present government, the emperor, is not the son of the gods, as your primary school teachers and others would have you believe. The ancestors of the present emperor came forth from one corner of Kyushu, killing and robbing people as they went. They then destroyed their fellow thieves, the other noblemen. It should be readily obvious that the emperor is not a god if you but think about it for a moment. When it is said that the imperial dynasty has continued for 2,500 years, it may seem as if the present emperor is divine, but down through the ages the emperors have been tormented by foreign opponents and domestically treated as puppets by their own vassals. Although these are well-known facts, university professors and their students, weaklings that they are, refuse to either say or write anything about it. Instead, they attempt to deceive both others and themselves. Knowing all along the whole thing is a pack of lies, unquote. Now, these writings deeply, deeply disturbed the Meiji regime, and they immediately burned any copies that they could find of these writings. At the same time, other people were so excited by the writings that they would run around the streets distributing them. This caused a nationwide manhunt for the author, which is to say, Uchiyama all of this broke in 1909 when police searched the Rinsenji Temple, which was formerly Uchiyama's abbotship, right? And they claim to have found 12 sticks of dynamite. His contemporaries and supporters claim that the charges were false. It is hard for me to know wh whether it's true or not. He was, Uchiyama was initially sentenced to 12 years in prison. Then, in 1910, the police arrested Takichi Mayashita, who was a, a lumber mill worker and anarcho-communist. They arrested him for possession of bomb-making materials. This was the start of what would be known as the High Treason Case, which was said to be an anarchist conspiracy to assassinate the Emperor Meiji. Uchiyama, who had been in prison for a year at this point, was re-arrested and charged with treason for plotting to assassinate the crown prince, 
which is to say an entirely new and different plot that he literally could not have been a part of. Uchiyama was charged under Article 73, Crimes Against the Throne, of the New Criminal Code, where prosecutors only had to show that defendants intended to bring harm to the imperial house, not that they had acted upon it in any way. This meant that ideas and intentions were literally on trial, not acts. This is functionally the same level of jurisprudence as Nazi Germany. During the trial, the chief prosecutor cited a tract that Uchiyama wrote, entitled, A Handbook for Imperial Soldiers, which I think is lost to us now, but this tract, in this tract, he calls for mass desertions. The authorities also arrested 25 more people, including three Buddhist priests, showing the existence of a small but dedicated Buddhist opposition. Also included in the arrests was the aforementioned Kano Sugako, the feminist activist. Uchiyama pleaded not guilty, and he stated that he had never plotted to kill the crown prince or any plot with Takichi. The defendants were all found guilty, largely on circumstantial and, dare I say, flimsy evidence. Twenty-four were sentenced to death, with two given prison sentences. The next day, twelve death sentences were then commuted to life in prison. Now, the other Buddhist monks had their sentences commuted, but Uchiyama was executed with the others the following day. The authorities clearly believed him to be the worst of the priests. Uchiyama Gudo was hanged. The historian Yoshida Kiyuchi wrote that as Uchiyama climbed the scaffold stairs, he gave not the slightest hint of emotional distress. Rather, he appeared serene, even cheerful, so much so that the attending prison chaplain bowed as he passed. The next day, when Gudo's younger brother Seiji came to collect his body, he demanded that the coffin be opened. Looking at Gudo's peaceful countenance, Seiji said, Oh, older brother, you passed away without suffering. What a superb face you have in death. In 1975, the descendants of the defendants petitioned for a retrial, and the Ministry of Justice stated clearly for the first time that the trial's transcripts no longer existed. Even if the transcripts had existed, it is doubtful that they would have provided definitive evidence of their guilt. To this day, there remains a lot of mystery surrounding this whole affair. In 1993, the Soto sect of Zen Buddhism restored Uchiyama Gudo's status as a priest, saying, When viewed by today's standards of respect for human rights, Uchiyama Gudo's writings contain elements that should be regarded as far-sighted. Furthermore, they said, we now recognize that Gudo was a victim of the national policy of that day. The dynamite found in his temple had been placed there for safekeeping by a railroad company laying track through the Hakone Mountains and had nothing to do with him. The sect's original actions strongly al strongly aligned the sect with an establishment dominated by the emperor system. They were not designed to protect the unique Buddhist character of the sect's priests. 
On this occasion of the restoration of Uchiyama Gudo's reputation, we must reflect on the way in which our sect has ingratiated itself with both the political powers of the day and a state under the suzerainty of the emperor. Unquote. So his sect actually claimed later that Uchiyama was innocent, for what that's worth. But at a minimum, it shows Uchiyama's enduring popularity as a figure of dissent and of moral clarity, right? Also, let's take note here. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that a Japanese railroad company might be involved in shady dealings? Surely not. Hopefully we would not see Japanese railroad companies involved in a cascading series of deeply important parapolitical events in the future, right? The idea that the railroad company set him up is entirely believable to me. Now, at the time, the authorities raided and destroyed all the writings of Uchiyama's they could find. Presumably, he may have written more, but all we have is what was published publicly. All that's left of his belongings are the public papers that he wrote and a few statues of Buddha that he had given to his parishioners. He was a woodcarver, by the way. He would carve statues of the Buddha. Now, the authorities would not allow the sect or any of his followers or friends to mark his grave. And in fact, in the years to follow, someone actually went and left flowers there, which caused a whole investigation where they searched the village to figure out who would dare to do that and punish them. Now, what are we to make of Uchiyama Gudo? By the way, I definitely said Uchimaya at one point, but... Uchiyama Gudo. What are we to make of him? Well, to quote a scholar on Japanese studies named Paulus Kaufman, he said, In a sense, Uchiyama was neither a doctrinal thinker, neither a doctrinal thinker of Buddhism nor a clear-cut anarchist. Although he considered himself to be a member of the Japanese socialist anarchist movement of the day, in his writings he also defended institutions that seemed to be compatible with representative democracy or with social market economy. Third, Gudo cannot be seen as an immaculate model for peaceful Buddhist revolt against injustice and oppression. He sympathized with terrorist action against the state, and he claimed that the hand that holds the rosary should also always hold a bomb. Now, I can't say that any better. Uchiyama was more complicated than most anarchists, yet he was not only a Buddhist monk. And of course, Uchiyama reminds me, perhaps most of all, of Simon Radowitzki and Kurt Vilkins, regardless of whether he ever intended to take violent action or not. So the fallout from the high treason incident forced, quote-unquote, forced the leaders of the Buddhist sects to work all the more closely with the state. Now this week was set up and next week we are going to trace that support in even more direct ways, especially in Japan's imperial conquests abroad, which we have already sort of laid the groundwork for in Korea, Manchuria, and China. For sources today, I used the excellent work Zen at War by Brian Dyson Victoria, as well as his book Zen War Stories. 
Then I also used the book Zen Anarchism, the Egalitarian Dharma of Uchiyama Gudo, as well as a review of the same book by Paulus Kaufman. Thank you for listening, dear listener. Check out my Patreon, where I do one-off episodes for the most part. Now I am on my way to Chicago, Illinois. See you next episode, and God bless. Oh, eh.